Are you ready to go, Leo? Yeah. Awesome. Have you got your lunchbox? No. Do you want to quickly go get it? Yeah. Let's go. Come on, chicken. Bye, everyone. This is Tomorrow's Daughter Stories, a podcast to inspire you, current and future generations of women. In each episode, I will interview who I regard to be an everyday successful woman. A woman who no doubt would argue otherwise, but I am on a life mission to redefine success for the women of today and the daughters of tomorrow. In today's episode, I will be interviewing Zoe Tabori, who is by far one of the most brilliant and insightful humans I have ever met. She joins me to put the world to right. We talk about her experience as a tech editor in one of the world leading news provider organizations. We cover pay negotiations, what it feels like to step up in our jobs, and the imposter syndrome that can come with that. But also, we explore society's influence on women and what we can learn from men. That is also, I think, quite humbling when we think of imposter syndrome, is to think that, well, sure, I'm feeling it, but everyone else in the room is feeling it too. My overriding really thought was, I will fail and I will let people down. Surround yourself with good people. Be humble enough to say, I don't know the answer to this. I need help with this. At some point, you just need to get stuck in as uncomfortable as it may be. I'm your host, Victoire Mazzuni. I am mum to Jack, Leo and Arlo, but also I am an ICF accredited executive coach and founder of Tomorrow's Daughter, a life and executive coaching business committed to supporting gender balance in the workplace. So if you want to find out more, navigate to www.tomorrowsdaughter.co.uk. And in the meantime, stay tuned to listen to today's inspiring story. So Zoe, and I want to call you Zoe, um, probably throughout this, we've known each other for so long, haven't we? You are one of my oldest, oldest friends. In fact, I've been really fortunate when I started this podcast to have incredible friends and people in my surrounding who I cannot wait to celebrate. And you are one of the first people that came to mind. So much about you is to be shared today. And I know we won't get into all of it, but I guess just for the listeners that are joining us, um, I just thought I'd just give a little bit about your story and jump in. And in fact, if you want to say it, you know, just go for it. Um, But first of all, you are mum to gorgeous Flynn. You're married to a total tech geek and like <laughs> sci-fi nerd, aren't you? <laughs> yep, guilty as charged. Oh my God. And I love that. Jinden is just, I mean, Jinden is success in his own right as well, isn't he? In the, in the nerd space, yeah. Um, just in terms of your career, um, I remember when you first got your first experience at The Economist and I was like, oh my goodness, like total imposter syndrome came up for me. And I was like, how does she work for such a big brand? So 10 years in journalism and from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, um, mainly in the space of human rights, women's rights, digital rights and climate change. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that, that sums it up pretty much. Human rights abuses of which there's sadly never a shortage of. So still in a job. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that must be... I guess, interesting, but also challenging. It is because, you know, you both want to kind of report on issues that that matter and and that matter kind of to people, but you also want to do it in a way that people want to listen, right? And I find that often with a lot of issues, and and this actually includes, you know, gender equality, um, people feel that they've heard the same refrain over and over again, or that you know, people can become quite evangelical about it so much so that a feminist, you know, and feminism in some circles has kind of become a, a dirty or, or taboo word. So yeah, tr- I'm trying to always be mindful as, as a journalist and kind of, and then just generally a woman and, and how when talking about these issues, um, doing so in a way that kind of brings people along for the ride rather than kind of alienate them. And that's massive, isn't it? Because it is about storytelling, but also factual storytelling and making sure that people do have the information to be mm. able to make informed judgments, um, but remaining impartial, but the story still has to be said in a way that it can be received, which is what I'm hearing you say. Mm. Completely, exactly. You know, you need to say it in terms that people understand. I also firmly believe in, you know, both in journalism, but just business and, and life more broadly, that you can't be what you can't see. Um, mm. And so, you know, I've kind of always looked out to be it kind of just in my immediate circles, kind of female models, role models, or women in business or in journalism whom whom I really admire. Um, and I think that's 
quite a difficult thing to do or to aspire to if, if you don't really have that or those models in, in front of you. So who are those models for you then? Oh my gosh, there are so many. You know, I have some of my immediate circles who include kind of former managers. I've, I was lucky actually to, I'd say most of the, all of my managers bar two have been women. Um, and my kind of most consequential and, and longer standing managers have been women. So that had a massive impact because they were, you know, all of them similar profiles, actually quite, you know, pioneers in their field, often very successful in, in their careers and in their own rights. Um, and felt very strongly about kind of empowering women, especially empowering younger women. Um, I'd say, you know, role model, well, I'm appreciating this much more now as, as maybe you are too, but my mum, uh, you know, just appreciating a lot of what she kind of did for me, did for us as kids. I think, you know, this isn't specific to women, but so much of it, I, I remember brushing off from my parents as, just annoyance or kind of, you know, can you just get out of the way? And, and now I just realize quite how much parents and especially mums have to sacrifice and, and very often without, you know, any form of gratitude, never mind recognition. Um, so I appreciate that a lot, lot more. So interesting you say that because I think that's been like the biggest eye opener for me as well, becoming a mum is I like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> totally putting it out there. I was critical of some of the things my parents did growing up, especially through my teenage years. And, and you then like suddenly see it from the other side and you suddenly, you know, the respect you have for your parents, which is always there, but massively mm. increases, doesn't it? So much so. And that you, you know, I almost daily will, and you know, I don't, cause it would be <laughs> an almost hourly occurrence, but I almost daily find myself wanting to just grab my phone and, and just kind of apologize to my parents or my mum specifically and say, oh my God, that thing that I was just, you know, such a spoiled brat about, I get it now, or, or you were right. And, and this is with, I mean, you know, this far more with having, you know, three, three young, adorable boys, but, and this is with my baby being less than a year old. So I can't begin to imagine what it'll feel like when he hits puberty and adolescence and just doesn't want anything to do with us. Yeah. So and <laughs> And it actually starts quite a lot younger. I'm already seeing it in Does Jack it? is four. So brace Great. yourself. Brace I've yourself. Got you, I've got you actually for, for that. Well, you know, and in terms of models, um, I would say friends and, you know, friends like, like you starting this amazing thing with tomorrow's daughters. And, and I've, I'd say most of what I've learned in terms of life lessons and kind of valuable life skills. And by that, I don't mean kind of necessarily just work, pure knowledge, but just life experience. Um, is mates like, like you and close friends who no matter how many books you read or what kind of podcasts you listen to, um, you really get and learn the most from the people close to you because you can relate to them. And so, yeah, I think that's probably the most impactful role models for me. Yeah. And do you know what? This is why my journey in this podcast is starting with interviewing some of my closest friends who you know, because I learned even more through just being sat here, spending an hour, just listening to your story and what's important. If I think about you and being successful on the receiver end of what I've seen, it's interesting, right? Because we talk about success and immediately I'm caught into asking all of my, I guess, interviewees, um, what, you know, what's your, what's, what their career journey has been and all of that. But actually fundamentally for me, what strikes me about the people that come onto this podcast are some of those incredible traits that they have. And I just want to name a few for you that come up for me. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> the first one is resilience. You are probably the most resilient person I've ever come across. And I- oh, That's so kind of you to say. It's true. It's true. And I just look at what you have seen, what you've gone through- um, and the amount of positivity, which is my number two for you, that you've chucked at your life and at everything around you. And I cannot think of one moment where you turned to me and kind of gave up and felt like it was just all too much. And you and I both know there were times where I think for anyone it would have been too much. So the third one that comes to mind is determination. And that to me is why you are a success. So I just wanted to put it out there. Oh, bless I guess you. oh, you're making make me emotional now. <laughs> <laughs> what comes up for you as you think about success and your life and your story? Oh gosh, um, 
I've never, I guess I've never thought of it as an end in of itself and that, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to sit down, feel satisfied and think that's it. I've made it. I'm successful. But equally, I also don't think that I've not made it. So I guess for me, success is a form of contentment, which I think I kind of reach if I feel that both in kind of work, but also in my personal life. So largely with my husband, Jinden, my son, Flynn, and then close family and, and friends like you, um, that I'm to the extent that I can kind of making a positive difference. Um, and, you know, I do have, and I think this is very of, of our generation, probably more so for even more so for the kids and generations coming after us. There is always that kind of niggling voice or that constant kind of, you know, existential angst of, oh, what if, or I could have achieved this, this and that by this age and kids today, you know, they've done all these like five, six jobs by age 20 and um, speak 10 languages, travel the world. Um, so there is always, I'm never kind of completely satisfied and I'm not sure that will ever go away. Yeah. Success, I would say for me is more a state frame of mind rather than an end goal that I'll ever achieve. I love that. That is awesome. Well, what is it for you? I mean, is it a, a similar thing? Yeah, it's a really good question. Cause I think for me, it's almost like intangible and I can't mm. quite put my finger on it. And I think for me, it's funny cause I was asked the question and it is about this feeling of being at peace yeah. with yourself, with your decisions, with your be your behaviors and your actions. Um, and that to me is success because if I feel at peace, it means that everything that I've done has been according to who I am and what I truly yeah. believe in. I so agree. And I think that's where you're so right that, well, to me as well, it is intangible because you literally, I think from a day to another, you know, one day I'll feel really pleased with the meetings I've had, the interactions I've had, the way things are going at home and think, oh, damn, well, you know, I, I made it or, or this has been a really good day. And others, all it can take is a meeting that you don't think has gone well, um, a friend you think you might have offended, or even some random interaction on, on the tube when commuting where that just clouds your judgment and, you know, your perception of the whole day and immediately start thinking snowball effect of, oh my gosh, I should have done this by this age. And this person's going to think this of me. And I failed in all of these areas. And I'm always amazed by how kind of quickly things can change for the better or for the worst. It's almost like a fleeting moment, a, like a tiny thing can suddenly shift your entire day from feeling like you've got this, you're smashing it to actually, this is, this is the worst I've been. And Completely. I'm not gonna, yeah. And I'm not going to get there and it all feels too hard. And, you know, and I feel that every day in motherhood, you know, the moment I'm like, I'm like, okay, I've spent four hours and my kids are still smiling and they're the cutest thing ever. And we've had we've rolled around on the floor and we've giggled. And then suddenly there's this tantrum that I cannot control. And who yeah. am I to think that I can control a three-year-old's tantrum? I can't, but then I feel like I failed. Mm. And and I think it's interesting because that happens um, for many women with whom I have conversations in terms of their mindset. And I guess yes. I'm curious, do you think it is a woman thing and, or do you think men have the same? I think, you know, I think men experience and feel failure daily too, but I do think our mindset, and I'm fascinated as to why that is, whether it's, you know, part biological, hormonal, or just, I think, likelier, um, kind of psychological and societal, right? So kind of decades of like systemic kind of um, biases in, in our system. I think us women experience and look at, be it failure or frustration in, in different ways than men do. I think we, or at least I, in my case, tend to probably, you know, assign them more importance or maybe time than they deserve to, than they deserve. So I will spend sometimes on a bad day hours obsessing over, you know, the most insignificant interaction or detail or meaning that a person may have had when not responding to me or responding in a certain way. Whereas I'm always actually fascinated when discussing them with, um, you know, Jin and my husband uh, to hear his reaction. Cause you know, he's, he's a quite sensitive person and, and empathetic and, and kind and everything, but some stuff I'll explain to him will just completely pass him by and, and he'll be like, Oh, I, I just wouldn't even have thought of it that way, or I think you're overthinking this. And that often to me is a quite good, a good kind of moral compass or just sense check, right? When I feel I'm perhaps overacting to something or just feel quite upset about something and, and want to get a different perspective, 
I'll often go to him and that will be quite refreshing. And I'll think, okay, this is important to me, but I'm probably obsessing over it, over it more than I need to. On the flip side and the positive side, where I think that makes us really good at our jobs and really good friends and just really good partners, wives, sisters, you name it, um, is the empathy that it, it comes with, yeah. right? So because we spend so much time thinking about it, um, we have that attention to detail and we're always kind of 10 steps ahead, especially sometimes, you know, as, as mums. And so I think that kind of, yeah, uh, allows you that empathy in, in your personal life that men maybe don't have as much of. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because empathy is a conversation that comes up a lot for Ross and I in our marriage and how I am naturally more empathetic than him. Now, is it because... I'm a woman, maybe not. Is it because I'm me? Maybe. Is it because he's just naturally a bit less empathetic? Who knows? But it's it's interesting because there's been quite a lot of research by, done by Lean In around women in senior leadership roles and how actually mm. it's so important to have them there because actually when it comes to diversity and inclusion, well-being, they are the advocates for that. And if organizations were purely just ruled by senior leaders that were all men, that would be missing and would be stalling our economy from moving mm. forward. So it's just, it is interesting because like you say, it's almost like there is a flip side. There is this piece around overthinking is not good for us, but then also we are very much in tune with people's emotions, with yeah. the impact that we have on others and and the impact people have on us. And so, yeah, so that's really fascinating. It's true. And I think in a way it's almost, ugh, I don't want to say you're across to bear because it's not like it's necessarily a, a bad thing, but I think it's, yeah, the price we pay to a certain extent for maybe being, um, more, and I hate generalizations, but you know, I do think women are largely and generally more empathetic and better at, at paying attention to detail. What I do think we can do though, and, and I've been trying to do, and it's my God, a daily effort is just trying to train our kind of brains to, you know, chase away these intrusive thoughts. Or if you feel that you're spending too much time on something, just taking a step away. And for me, it's sometimes just going for a quick run or, mm. you know, taking a break, five minute break and kind of reading, in a way that just kind of takes your brain away from that thought. And it doesn't mean it's disappeared, but just that it, for that moment, it's focusing on something else. Um, That's such a powerful tip. When exactly, in that sense, I think the the brain, which I know very little about, but I'm realizing more and more is almost like a muscle and, and something that you can, I mean, this is probably wrong in so many medical ways, but you know, something that you can kind of train yourself to yeah. do. And that's quite, I guess, empowering or encouraging in a way, because it means that, well, we're not predetermined or destined to like, you know, obsess over everything forevermore and, and yeah, that there is a way around it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're spot on. The brain is a muscle and it's about like tuning into what it's saying and catching it when it's being too loud and, and also perhaps poking it when, mm. you know, you're kind of getting stuck in some limiting beliefs that aren't, that aren't enabling you or any, you know, and your future. So really interestingly, today something popped up on my thread. Now, everyone will know who follows me that I am a massive Stephen Bartlett fan. Like I just think he is incredible on so many different levels. And he recorded himself talking about imposter syndrome. And I guess as I'm talking, as I'm thinking about the brain, the brain takes so much space. It's very present in the coaching mm. process that I offer my clients. And one of the main topics that keeps coming back is imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. Mm. I don't feel good enough. I don't fit in. I don't have a place here. Who's going to catch me out and realize that, you know, I shouldn't be here. And he talks about how actually we are automatically defining ourselves in almost like a negative space by using that language of imposter mm. syndrome. It's not empowering, is it? To be like, hey, yeah, I've got imposter syndrome. And he talks about moments of growth. So when you feel like you don't fit in, when you feel like oh my God, you failed, whatever it is, what if you were to see it as rather than imposter syndrome, it's a moment of growth for me, a moment where I'm mm. going to learn so much from it. Yeah, I like that. I, you know, I agree with him that words matter so much and that it becomes the kind of default, our default setting so often is, is not to think what we can do, but we're falling short on, short of. Um, I would kind of almost flip it around and say that, you know, one thing I've, I'm realizing more and more is that I don't think imposter syndrome is such a bad thing. I think it is in terms of the space it occupies in our brains and, you know, the time we kind of spend obsessing over it. But imposter syndrome for me is also a form of self-awareness. And that's 
a thing that I think we women are are very good at. Like we know our limits. We know what we can and can't do. We probably set our limits kind of sometimes, um, you know, far shorter or closer to us than than they are. And, and we can do much more. But I would far rather have imposter syndrome than the flip side of that, which again, sweeping generalization, but is often <laughs> a male thing, blind incompetence, right? Oh, and yeah. I much, I think it is a form of strength to know this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. And actually to Stephen's point, this is and should be an area of growth for me. This is where I need to go and find out more for myself and enlighten myself. Whereas a man or woman, it could be a woman, who just blindly thinks they've got it, they get it, they understand, they're gonna go, not going to look for growth and they're not going to go you know, look for those conversations and try to find out more. And that then kind of limits their horizons and, and everyone else's. So I... I'm realizing kind of more and more that those areas are those times where I've worried and thought, ooh, do I really understand this topic that I'm talking about? Or did that kind of meeting go okay? I then try to flip it around to, well, you know, look at me. At least I am trying to spend time thinking about how this person felt about the meeting. Um, that might then prompt me to follow up with them and, uh, you know, see how they're doing. Or it might prompt me to go pick up a book and try to find out about this topic, which I don't think I'm an expert in. So, in a way, I think it, it can be kind of positive when it prompts you into, into action as opposed to blind incompetence, which is the other extreme, I guess. Yeah. And so that's like a total new lens for me. So thank you. It's making me think on the spot. You talk about blind incompetence, man or woman, and it's limiting their horizon. But the question that came up to me is actually, is that what gets them now I'm going to call it the traditional definition of success. Is that actually mm. what leads them to becoming vice presidents of an organization? Because they're just literally blinding, you know, blindly going forward with it. And mm. so confidently that no one's ever going to like knock at the door and be like, what the hell are you on about? I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think there's, you know, for me, there's a difference between kind of almost limitless self-belief, which I don't think in and of itself is is a kind of good thing. But, you know, I think someone extremely talented and smart, um, okay, pick random name, Elon Musk, can have yeah. generally no limits to their self-belief. And, you know, they are definitely competent and they are clever. That doesn't necessarily make them a good leader and certainly not necessarily a good manager. Yeah. But for me, there's a difference between that and you know, people or managers or friends or men who who think that they are succeeding, for want of a better word, in their job, in their private life, at a certain task they're doing, but because they have that kind of blind faith, don't necessarily kind of question themselves on it and don't necessarily crucially have the competence to, to back it up. And I think one thing that very, very often exists in business and at management and more so at, you know, male level than female level um, it's just men are people who aren't that good at what they do. And that is also, I think, quite humbling when we think of imposter syndrome is to think that, well, sure, I'm feeling it, but everyone else in the room is feeling it too. A hundred percent. And actually, so we were at a conference just recently and one of the questions that we asked the panel of directors, now these are, you know, looking after the whole UK and Ireland ops directors was, Oh, and also across EMEA, do you ever feel imposter syndrome? And unanimously, the men were like, hands up, I feel it mm. every day. That's so interesting. And we wouldn't necessarily think of that, yeah. But so is there an internal bias as us as women, which is, you know, self-limiting, which is that men don't feel imposter syndrome mm. and we bring it back on ourselves because society talks about the fact that there is imbalance, the fact that it's not equal. Yeah. I think, I agree with you. I think, as you say, we all feel it and men feel it as well. I think for men, it is less, um, how to put it, paralyzing or kind of less of an obstacle mm. than it is to women, because I think they are better generally, again, just at compartmentalizing or just kind of moving on and seeing it for what it is, a thought, and then move on to the kind of next thing. Whereas I think we probably, not only do we feel it ourselves, but we also feel as women that everyone else around the room is thinking about how rubbish we are at a given thing. Mm. And 
that's one thing that I'm, I don't think men kind of spend as much time thinking about. And, and it is in a way quite a narcissistic thing almost, right? To kind of be imagining that everyone in the room is talking about how rubbish we are or kind of how we <laughs> failed at this task or no one really spends that amount of time thinking about you. So that sometimes I find quite a freeing thought whenever I feel I'm failing at something or have failed at something is to think, no one's talking about you. No one cares. You know, yeah, it really doesn't matter. A hundred percent. And I'm wondering whether there's a piece around like the way society has shaped us to be who we are. And I was watching this TED talk recently and it was all about, we were taught to be perfect, to aim for perfection. And, you know, it goes back to that classic example that everyone brings up, which is when you're going for a new job, a woman's mm-hmm. going to look to tick a hundred percent of the required skills and yeah. experience and qualifications and a man will look at 60%. And so mm-hmm. with that in mind, you know, from a very young age, we're taught to look for perfection in what we're doing before we present, before we actually arrive and, yeah. and be our whole selves. Yeah, that's such a good point because it's this kind of self-imposed, but also imposed on us by decades and decades of, um, you know, societal and, and inbuilt pressure that these are things that we should be striving for. And I think it is a complete, even the language we use, having it all and, and kind of juggling motherhood and career and, and et cetera is, is language that's not necessarily helpful because much like success, I don't think it's it's a thing you can ever achieve. And if you even were able to achieve it, it's something that you have to keep working at, right? You might yeah. have achieved it one day, but the next day won't be the same. And so I think for us, and whether you're a mom or a friend or just a woman or the sooner I think you let go of those ideals, which is not to say and let go of ambition and, and not strive for anything, but the sooner you kind of let go of those ideals that are imposed on you rather than something you generally want for yourself, the likelier you are to be what you deem successful or content or kind of happy. And also just because as you've said, as you know, a mum of three and, and I feel even as a mum of one, we are by definition, our whole lives going to be kind of running after something, right? One challenge will be replaced by the next. And then the work challenge will be replaced by something else. And then the economy will crash. And then, so we just will never be able to, to have it all or to have it in a way that's been kind of promised to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we kind of need to, to unpick that because that's also not something, by the way, that's expected of nor promised to men. Um, So again, why is it expected that we as women, and again, whether you're a mother or not, should be able to do all of those things when men don't have to. Men do buy, go by just fine by being quite average. Wow. <laughs> and like, you know, putting it out there, I'm sure some listeners might be like, whoa, that's quite intense. And yeah, I'm probably <laughs> sounding like a massive man hater, which I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a hundred percent not, but I think when we, and I think this is the risk, right? We get into these conversations and there's this whole thing, which becomes like, it's all about men bashing. And that's yeah. not what it is. I think it's, it's a curiosity around why is it that we have it so differently, whether it be better Mm. or worse in some environments. And actually, I think we can learn a lot from men. Huge. There is so much we can learn. Like one, I just like risk taking is probably one of the biggest thing that comes to mind. Um, The ability to just let go of certain things. There's so much. And, and I think that men can learn a lot from us. And recently, I was kind of confronted to really exciting, challenging conversation around actually, you know, if we really want to make headways around gender balance, equality, equity, we need to be doing more at a systemic organizational level, Mm. at a systemic political level. Um, But we need to be bringing men into that conversation from a very early on and make them our allies. And that's really a key part for me of the process moving forward. And in fact, I'm kind of excited because I've got a feeling that, you know, in season two of Tomorrow's Daughter Stories, I would love to hear the other side of- That would be amazing. Yeah. like I would love to hear that. I think there's there's space for this. There's room for this. And, and I want to hear it. People want to hear it. And I think it's super telling that, you know, the podcast that you love, Diaries of a CEO, is by Stephen Bartlett. And that, to me, my kind of moral compass or when I need a self-sense check or just confidence boost is my husband. And I think that's Mm. no known coincidence because it's, you know, just a compliment to, to the way we think. And I completely agree with you that in many aspects of life, and I think... Um, pay negotiation, for example, um, 
just general forms of negotiation, something where we can do so much more with that self-belief or that kind of, I don't want to say blind self-belief because you want to go into it knowing your limits and, and your yeah. kind of skills and what you're able to do. But my God, and even the language we use, well, pay negotiations, one, emails, another, how mm. many times, you know, have you or I and kind of other women started emails with, um, so sorry to bother you, da, 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 da. Just wondering if you'd had a chance to blah, blah, blah. Could you do this? No worries at all. If not, I'll manage. And I've had to check myself so many times to just cut, no worries, cut, just wondered if, cut all of these like conditional superlatives that give the person, the recipient a way out and which men just don't, don't use to that extent. I do that all the time and I do it out of politeness. And I, I come from a place of that's, that's my ability to influence which is crazy as you're, as you're talking, I'm like, why the hell do I do that? And everyone talks about like, stop being so apologetic just to women in general, but you're right. We're almost giving the option of there is an option for you to just not take us up on this, on this. Yeah. We're making it. And, and, you know, I do think a level of it is, is appropriate and that the flip side is no good thing either. Right. I personally get really put off by um, you know, these like one word, two word kind of replies or emails are like, oh my God, I'm so busy that just kind of sent on the move, like just do with this what you will, or good luck deciphering my like three letters. Um, (laughs) that is also not helpful, but I do think, and I found this a bit more actually since coming back to work since Matt leaves, I've only been back for a little over a month that now that I'm much more time poor or have to do more kind of with limited time, that I am having to set boundaries and I'm having to be firmer, both in email and then in in conversations about what I can do. But that I actually find that when I do lay those boundaries, A, people respect them a lot more. So very rarely do I then get someone back and querying, oh, why can't you do that? Or that's quite rude. But B, I feel that there is then more value to me saying yes or me agreeing to do something because it's my time and, and it's precious. And I find that, or I think that, the older me, which perhaps would have said yes to kind of everything or do a bit of everything, it would have been like, well, yeah, I'm going to ask Zoe because she'll kind of do it anyway. And then you setting those boundaries makes that that kind of yes much more valuable. And I think that is the superpower of becoming a mum because I had exactly the same. I came back full-time work after, um, after Jack and I just decided it's not even I decided, it was decided for me that I needed to be home to pick up my child from nursery. Yeah. And, and I guess naturally I put myself into that position because Ross's job continued going. He had a higher pay. So if he left work earlier, it meant, you know, like in my head, it meant it was like more money at stake. And, but what I have learned is it has been a superpower. And I think to your point, you end up setting boundaries that are immovable. Mm. And so people have to work within those boundaries. And what was really fascinating is I came back and I had, I have never received, received, sorry, such good feedback on my performance, my work ethic. And yet I was fundamentally doing less hours work, but I was extremely Mm. productive and effective at like juggling loads of things whilst I was there. So, so interesting, isn't it? Around those boundaries that. Yeah, it it is. And this is where I think sometimes looking to, you know, either our own or just kind of children in general, you learn so much in a way because you think, and there are so many debates going around, around how to raise children, what, what, not getting, getting into that. Um, But, you know, just the value in some cases of boundaries and routine. I've been amazed. And if I'm completely honest, shocked by how, comforting or helpful in in Flynn's case, at least routine or just kind of basic little rules seem to be and how quickly he'll kind of, you know, they'll get ingrained in his mind. And so then I think, well, is it some way in some way the same for us adults, especially with, you know, in a society as socially awkward and God love them and and we are, you and I, kind of Brits, but as the Brits, where <laughs> people are then thinking, well, that's one less thing to kind of navigate or have to obsess over or kind of tiptoe on. If you just give me the boundaries from the outset and say, I won't be available at these times. I don't like to eat vegetables, which, you know, I don't. Um, <laughs> how freeing and helpful is that? Because that person then doesn't have to cook vegetables or doesn't have to worry about, oh my God, does she want to leave? Or like, is this a good time? 
Yeah, it kind of removes the the hesitancy out of the equation, doesn't it? The exactly. not knowing how to be around an individual because those boundaries are so defined that it's easier yeah. to navigate. It's always ne- easier to navigate. Take a map. If you've got the boundaries and you totally. understand where you're going, then you're fine. Yeah. Oh my God, so much. And you know, you talked about pay negotiations in terms of like acting as a man in that. And I want to get back to some of the really important stuff here. But just side note, I went in with a pay negotiation. I was like, Ross, train me here. How do I do this? Bearing in mind, I used to train him on how to have yeah. really effective pay conversations. And literally, it could not have been worse received to the point where I got told there is no room for this discussion within three minutes of me having the conversation. And that was because I went at it with very close questions. Mm. And and it just was like, hold on a minute. Who don't are you? To, yeah, yeah, who are you? I don't know how to deal with this. And I suddenly got me thinking, oh my God, if I had had an equal who was a man and had approached it that way, would that yeah. have been a different outcome for that individual? Likely. Yeah. That, that's such a good point because it's hard to kind of interpret in those reactions. And I've had the same ones as you, right? When going into a pay negotiation where you think, that's it, I've practiced it. I know what I'm asking for, going all guns blazing. You have all this kind of thing played in your head of how they're going to react. And then it's just door slammed or like, literally, who do you think you are? You should feel so lucky. And you're like, oh, this is so not what I imagined. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of that in some cases can be, as you say, if and when we kind of go in with just our perspective and, and don't necessarily game or anticipate what the manager or the person we're negotiating with might have thought. But I think an, a big part of it is also them just not being used to those reactions or necessarily those reactions from us. And and a bit of it is just, and I've even had that, if I'm honest, from some of my reports who have then kind of, as they should have, and in some cases, you know, merited, asked for a pay rise or asked for something where I've, in my head, I've been like, hold on, and kind of almost been a bit taken aback, but then thought, good on you. Mm. And so I... Yeah, I think part of that reaction that that we get is them just kind of thinking, holy shit, how, kind of how, what the heck? Like, where did this come from? You know, someone had their Weetabix. Yeah, yeah, totally unexpected behavior. How has this just kind yeah. of come up? And then it's almost defensiveness pops up. Yeah. And then you also walk away. I walked away feeling embarrassed, feeling ashamed for having asked for a pay rise. Bearing in mind, I hadn't had one for, for yonks. And it's just, hold on a minute, let's take a step back here. Anyway, mm. total side note, what I'm really excited to hear more about is your experience um, of when you stepped up as editor-in-chief for a period of time. Um, you might want to be specific as to how long it was because I can't remember off the top of my head. Was it four months? Six yeah, months? it was super brief. So it was three to four months, I'd say. Three to four months. Yeah. Um, so massive job. Mm. Do you want to talk to us about your experience and what came with that? Because I understand you were man- managing, what, 40 journalists? Is that right? Yeah, it was. it was about 40 and it was... I guess for me, it was more just kind of the the jump from what the previous and actually current job is now that that I've gone back to of of managing a you know a team of, of five journalists and and running my my own file um, and the responsibilities that come with that. But that I've been doing for a few years and and feel comfortable with now. And and this opportunity came where you know our our boss, our kind of big boss, editor in chief, just just kind of left and. Um, their replacement wasn't to start until much later, but also kind of needed someone to to kind of train them up and deputize for them. Um, and I had been asked, and this was kind of the second time, actually, the job that I have now also happened a bit as a an accident. It wasn't so much something I'd applied for as the person before me resigned, uh, retiring suddenly. And then, then thinking, okay, shit, we need someone to ask. Um, and in both of those cases, I remember my immediate kind of reaction was, oh my God, no way. I can't do this. It's far more than what I do now. It's managing too many people. I think my overriding really thought was, I will fail and I will let people down. I think that's really what I was terrified of. And this again is where my husband, and you know, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern here that when I need a sense check and when I need to kind of talk things through, he is most often the one I go to. And actually in some cases, my dad as well, which to your point about the podcast also probably says something about you know, much as, as we are talking about women and empowering women, we also do need to be able to channel some of that energy and um, kind of elsewhere. So it's it's interesting that these are the the two people I go to. Um, but yeah, my, my initial kind of reaction was, I'm going to let people down. I can't do this. 
And I then kind of by speaking to colleagues, speaking to my husband, my dad got to think, well, really, A, you know, you're starting this from a pretty strong position. No one else can, in this case, kind of do the job or is a kind of candidate internally for the job. And B, all you really have to do is just don't screw it up and <laughs> be kind of humble enough to, I think the the later one, the, the one of editor-in-chief is the one I was most terrified about because the impact for us of getting, say, something wrong in a story, having to issue a correction or even just pissing off a company, a government, whatnot, can be huge. So we get, you know, daily legal threats or complaints, often wow. from very, you know, deep-pocketed companies with big PR teams and legal teams telling you, I'm going to sue for X, Y, and Z. And I was thinking, my God, I'm not a lawyer. I'm going to find myself in this job of editor-in-chief, getting these daily. How on earth am I going to handle them? I was imagining the worst case scenarios of me being sued, losing my job, the whole company going bankrupt, which of course was like ridiculous. Um, and so I think what that taught me is just take a step back, you know, think that A, people have come to you for a reason. There is something you can add here. B, think that start from the kind of default setting of, of don't screw it up and actually doing no harm is, is not so bad a start. And C, just kind of ask for help where you need it. Mm. And this is one thing I've learned and I'm still learning so much as a manager is surround yourself with good people. Be humble enough to kind of say, I don't know the answer to this. I need help with this. And I find now that people very often when when asked um, want to help and are kind of flattered or honored that you would consider them. And that's one thing that I think often as, as women, we don't necessarily think of doing where we think, well, I must solve this all myself and I can't possibly bother someone else with it. Um, and you then end up not only kind of doing so much more in terms of workload, but also putting so much pressure on yourself that mm. you you didn't need to. And so the question that's coming up for me, did you fail in that role? It's a good question. I mean, I I think I did a good job of it and that I'm still in a job. I'm still at that company. <laughs> we didn't go bankrupt. We didn't get sued. Well done. Um, <laughs> but on another level, you could say I did fail because, you know, the opportunity presented itself to stay kind of in that role or at least at the deputy role where I would have stayed on and essentially been that person's right hand or, or done much of the job for them. And I thought, and I remember actually speaking to you about it at the time and you were super helpful about it. I remember thinking, okay, I've done this. I've enjoyed aspects of it. I was at the time also in the first um, trimester of my pregnancy, felt horrendous, nauseous, tired, you know, the usual, um, and was just thinking, well, I could do it, but, you know, my health right now is more important. Do I want that amount of pressure? Do I want to kind of go back, rather go back to a job that I can do quite comfortably, affords me a good life, work-life balance? And so the latter is is what I did. And while I'm, I'm glad I jumped on the opportunity, I sometimes wonder, should I have stayed in it and you know, did I kind of settle for the easiest or the most comfortable option? Um, which, yeah, which is an interesting, but I'm, I'm glad I, I took it in the first instance because even if it was a few months, my God, for me, it was just, yeah, a crash course in management and work issues and crucially navigating most of those as, as a woman. And what would you say was the biggest challenge of being a woman in that role? being you, I guess, in it? Uh, I think it was of removing all of those inbuilt kind of, yeah, biases, inner critic, which I know I have, I know you have, and so many women have just to be good at my job, right? I was thinking, I've got so many things to do. I've got limited time to do it. I just cannot afford to waste that much time with this. And I thought, put this all to the side have a kind of debt, you know, at the end of the day, I would then kind of go through everything in my mind or hash it out with my husband. But during the day job, I was just forced to be so much more kind of efficient. And I think the second thing that was a challenge was to know your worth and kind of know, believe in what you are good at and, and kind of can do, which is a hard thing to do because I think very often, you know, we feel quite 
cringy or, or embarrassed or it's not the kind of done thing to, you know, be touting your other people's achievements. Um, but crucially, I don't think you can be a good manager or leader if you don't give people something to believe in. So if you're constantly apologizing for something or tiptoeing or not sounding yourself convinced, then how can you expect people to, to join you on the ride? That makes yeah, sense. That really does. So if you were to like deep dive into this role on the aspect of being a woman leader, were there any specific challenges behind that? Or was it just more stepping into this role as editor-in-chief that felt massive? I don't know. I mean, it's hard, I guess, to know if they were made worse or bigger by my dint of being a woman because I I didn't get to experience them being being a man. Um, but one that I think was, I mean, I was definitely acutely aware of being a woman while going through it um, was pay negotiation. You know, one of the things I still to this day find so, and I know so many women do too, find so acutely uncomfortable um, and awkward. But one of those things I think is fascinating because you think, what is literally, what are 10, 15 uncomfortable, awkward minutes in a conversation? If you look at what they actually represent, so possibly, I don't know, I'm making this up, a 5K pay rise or a 10K pay rise. If you think of the return on investment for those five or 10 minutes um, that are a bit unpleasant, but what they actually mean in terms of money, in terms of satisfaction, in terms of recognition, it is huge. I mean, no actual job or task or anything would give us that payoff for such a short amount of time. And yet I think so often, and I've definitely been guilty in the past, we've thought, oh, I'm just not going to ask for it now. It's not the right time. Or I already had a slight pay rise last year, so it's not my turn this time around. And our own bias is kind of what has stopped that. And I think going for that job and going in and asking for um, what I thought the kind of job was was worth. And this is one point I would make is to go in there informed and to have done your research to not come, you know, this petulant, sometimes cliche millennial kind of woman or employee being, I want this, 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 and that, and I want it with a smile, but to be, well, I've benchmarked this. This is what I know the job is worth. This is what you're asking me to do. And to then hold, hold the silence, hold the fort, call the person's bluff, let it sit there where again, my natural tendency would be to blah, 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 waffle and, and fill the silence and almost bargain against myself and give them a way out. Um, and that was just so, so, so enlightening because it was uncomfortable, but again, got ultimately what I wanted and, and what I was asking for. And so I think in terms of women and the impact we can make for ourselves and for others, that is such an area that is so, so, so ripe for change and where we really individually should just be getting so much more training and help with because it's yeah. in terms of the return on investment, it's huge. It makes it's, all the difference. It is. It's so huge. And that piece around hold the silence, I mean, that could be a training in itself, couldn't it? That is so powerful, Zoe. I'm going to take that one away. And it's interesting because you say, you know, we should be trained. We And it's, again, down to us. The onus is on us. And yet I see repeatedly women around me equipping themselves with so much research, so much data as they go into that conversation. And yet they don't get the result that they want. Mm -hmm. Some of them will get a pay rise, but it's not really the amount that they had hoped. Now, no doubt that happens to men as well, but it, it kind of shines a light on biases. Yeah. And I think there's probably a lot of like systemic organizational change that needs to happen when it comes to biases. Because yes, we can be trained and equipped as much as possible. We can hold that space, create silence, you know, turn it back on on the person in front of us. But is that enough? And I firmly believe that it's not. And interestingly, I was just uh, listening to a TED talk today which I found so eye-opening um, from a woman called Sarah Sanford. Mm-hmm. And she um, she basically talks about almost the genetics behind equity and, you know, the differences in 
in gender. And she talks that actually fundamentally there are small things that organizations can do at a very micro level that will make a huge difference. And what we need to be tackling are the biases. Um, so rather than investing millions on training, um, and I think she was referring to the tech industry and the amount of like money that goes into training and yet 45% of the women, you know, leave faster than men. Um, mm. But what's really fascinating is that these biases are so systemic, but if you change the small things, it makes a difference. Mm. Um, and, you know, she talked about a really simple thing, which isn't, I guess, appropriate in pay negotiations, but just, you know, when you're filling out a form or going towards applying for something, let's say you're applying for a training program, whatever it might be. And it, the first thing it asks you is your gender. And there's a tick box at the top that women perform um, worse than if they were asked the question at the end, because that will automatically puts them into a frame of mind where there is a bias and where the person who is analyzing that forms a bias. Forms a bias. So it's yeah. almost like a double edge thing. Yeah. And then the impact of the results is massive. So they basically have created this like certification in culture. And so organizations can actually go through a whole assessment and find out what are those systemic issues that they have when it comes to culture, when it comes to diversity, to inclusion, and let's kind of shake the ground. So I guess when it comes to pay negotiations, I genuinely think that the education almost needs to happen with breaking down those biases for those that go through that interview process from an interviewer point of view. Because mm. like when I say interviewer in the pay negotiation, whoever it is, I think there's so much that needs to be done there yeah um, massively and that is such an interesting example because I agree with you far more or rather than you know just a tick box exercise of oh we've spoken at this event or we've kind of you know sent out all of these emails and kind of whatnot what is going to be far more meaningful and, and impactful at on a you know practical level um is just kind of making those small changes in, in day-to-day interactions and and one of those things that I think we can help change, and, and that's both our responsibility as as women, but as well as men, um, is to call out any kind of instances of what we think might be an appropriate language or kind of behavior or just, you know, small, small things and to do so in an always polite and respectful manner. Um, but, you know, a couple of examples for me have been, I had a manager who would always be late to meetings and always be about, you know, 10, 15 minutes late, kind of one-on-ones largely, and would always be saying, oh, I just had to go to the, this was unsurprisingly a man, um, to the men's bathroom or just had to go get a coffee or kind of this, this and that. And I just thought, and you know, I I don't know whether it is fair to say this is a kind of male-female thing, but after a while I thought, I'm on time, you know, my time is as valuable as yours, please respect it. And I asked in a more deferential way, of course, but I said, if, if you could please just try to, to be on, try to be on time because I do. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of things kind of add up and, and it's made to be, to you be a very insignificant thing, but to me it is time. It is precious. Um, one other thing was, Hold on, how was that received? Actually to this manager's credit well, and he was actually, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You're, you're so right. I, I just, I hadn't thought of that. And, mm. you know, part of the blame or responsibility, I think, lay with me for letting it go unchecked and go on for so long and just him assuming and knowing that I would be there on time and he could just turn up whenever he was ready. So I'm glad I called it out. And, uh, you know, another instance was hearing a female colleague being spoken about in terms that were, you know, language that was used was um, difficult bit sensitive, you know, mm. bit, bit on edge, which is just not helpful. And, and of course, you know, everyone has, um, uh, how to put it, you know, everything is, um, is, is merit-based and, and everyone has kind of something to prove, but there is language that you just do not use for men and that you do use for women. Um, yeah. so thanks. Yeah. Things. Well, like and it. it's all down to personality traits. Like I think there's a it lot is. of research that's done in fact, by the same organization, the same women around um, performance development reviews. And when it comes to being your performance being reviewed, often the descriptors used are personality traits versus actual performance and what mm. they're noticing. So that's so interesting. And that doesn't happen as much for men. I think the difference is absolutely massive. It's like huge. 
Yeah. So I think it was 3% of instances where it happened for men and 73% happened um, in women's PDRs, wow. so performance development reviews. Don't quote me on it, but definitely look at the TED Talk by Sarah Sanford. Yeah, that, that, that says so much. And, you know, you were talking about International Women's Day and, and stuff that would make a difference. Start by not reinforcing biases. So can we please not have all International Women's Day stuff and design be pink and purple? You know, we like other colors or panels about IWD or kind of other issues. Women, I mean, it sounds like such a kind of basic thing, but so many of these panels that I either cover or am asked to kind of join um, will largely have, have men, have men on them, especially, and the irony often is when discussing gender equality or in some cases, women's rights. Um, you know, you, you you don't need to look further than the United States to, to look at how women's reproductive rights and, and how they manage their and own their body is decided by by men and middle-aged, white, privileged, able-bodied men. Um, yeah. And that in, in itself can be such, such a, like a difficult thing, right? Because it's sensitive. And I think what you're saying is partially right, but I'd probably also bring her back to we do need men to have a voice in that mm. in all aspects, right? Because they do need to be heard. And it's more like, how do we get equal views? And how do we ensure that women's voice are heard in the same way that men's voice are? Totally. And I think that's probably where the difference is. Yeah, I agree. And and I think, you know, I'm personally a strong advocate of things like female mentorships or groups and, and things like that. But in terms of the more public side of these things and actual events or kind of conferences, um, I'm less in favor of those being kind of women only because I think, you know, you're almost then kind of shutting yourself off from the rest of society and imagining this bubble or society that does not and never will exist. I mean, you actually have, interestingly, a few, and we've reported on some of them, utopian villages that exist, yeah. some of them deep, deep in the US of women kind of only. Um, and, you know, but but like practically, we, at least like in Western society and the way it exists now, it is never going to be a female only society. So it does not work and does not track, I think, to be having just events and conversations with just women. or investment, which is just women, because at some point you're going to need to open it up and then you'll have no one knocking at the door. Yeah, that is so true. Now, Zoe, time is going so quick, isn't it? And I feel like I could keep chatting to you for so long. No um, and there's so much that I would like to get into. So I might have to re-invite you at some point in the future. But um, I guess a question that I end each of my episode with, in fact, there are two. Um, what is the one piece of advice that you have for the women of today? I mean, I... I think, yeah, the thing I've most learned from and that I most often say to, you know, female colleagues or, or friends or kind of mentees um, is just to know your worth and to go in a conversation, a challenge, a task, a job, anything, um, being very aware of your skills, equally your limitations, um, and to not sell yourself short. So be that in pay negotiations, in a conversation, um, to not qualify or diminish what you're doing or saying and to just to back it up and be proud of what it is. And very often I think you'll be surprised by the reaction. The second thing I would say is as a woman and much to what you were saying about, you know, what can we learn from men and where can they be helpful? Well, I think where they can and, and what we can take from them is take opportunities when they present themselves and where you think they make sense for you. So nothing is, or things rarely are going to be presented to us, especially as women on a silver platter. So there is only so much that, you know, talks and mentorship and books can kind of teach you at some point, you just need to get stuck in as uncomfortable as it may be. And so that might mean applying for a job you don't think you're qualified for, or it might mean going into a pay negotiation you really don't want to have because you feel super uncomfortable about it. And then I guess the the third thing I would say is lean on other women. And actually by extension to that, I would say men as well, but basically ask for help. I think so often, and I include myself in this, we think of asking for help as a weakness or admission of failure. Um, when in fact, I think it's just one of the 
biggest signs of humility you can have, which is to say, I, and also a point of connection, right? To say, I need some help. I see you having this expertise or this kind of advice that I could benefit from. Please can, will you help me? Um, and that I think is, is such a powerful thing. Gosh, three very impactful pieces of advice there. And the second question, and it may be that there's similarities, it's the same or totally different. What is the wisdom that you want to share with the daughters of tomorrow? Listen to Victoria's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it would be, you know, I, I hate those like, Hello, or kind of t-shirt slogans of like the future is yours or of whatever, da, da, da. But the essence of it is still as cringy or basic bitch as it may sound is like a philosophy that I do believe in that to a certain extent, and this does not apply to everything. And there are limits and things that we are completely out of our control and we can do nothing with. But to some extent, I do think your future is what you will make of it. So I would say understand and get to know your expectations first, because to your point earlier about success, chasing a dream that A, doesn't necessarily exist, but B, is not what you want. You know, what worse kind of realization than waking up age 50 in a job you don't like with a husband or wife you don't love um, and only to realize that you've missed out on all the things you wanted to do. So if your dream job or what makes you happy is just to have a kind of nine to five type of job, um, close circle of friends, comfortable life, then that's great. And that is what you should strive for. So I think stop kind of chasing everyone else's dreams and just get to know yours. That is brilliant, Zoe. Thank you so, so much for coming on to Tomorrow's Daughter Stories. It's been such a pleasure to have you on here. And I can't wait to continue this conversation off, you know, the record off this podcast because you've got so much to share. So thank you for coming really quick favor for those of you who are enjoying tomorrow's daughter stories please don't forget to click follow the more followers we get the more traction we will have and that is what will allow us to give back to the daughters of tomorrow also if you would like to be a guest on this podcast please don't hesitate to reach out you can simply navigate to tomorrowsdaughter.co.uk and navigate to the contact page and please just email me i'll be so happy to hear from you 